Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Robert Gabay as he presents the Diabetes Tsunami, Facing the Crisis of Diabetes and Obesity. Great. Well, uh, thanks everyone for coming today. And uh, I, I look for this to be a very interactive discussion. And so I may just give you a few points and uh, just sort of frame the problem. But I suspect that many of you are or familiar with the problem. Uh, so, so maybe just to start out, if, I, if you don't mind, how many of you um, either have diabetes or know someone that has diabetes? Yeah, so it's, uh, as you can see, it's, it's very close to all of us here in uh, this community and around the country and around the world. Uh, so what, why do, if you look at my title, you know, what do I mean by the diabetes tsunami? So first let me talk about the, the, the diabetes uh, concept and what, what are we talking about there. Well, diabetes is increasing rapidly, and I'll give you some statistics in a minute. Um, and, and why is that? There, there are two main types of diabetes. Let's just sort of start with that. There's a, a, a type 1 and type 2, sort of convenient names. The type 1 is, is, the very sm is a small minority of people with diabetes. It's about 5 or 10% of people with diabetes. It's caused by an autoimmune disease where the immune system destroys the pancreas, the part of the pancreas that makes insulin. People don't make any insulin anymore. They have to be treated with insulin. That's the only therapy. And it's most commonly seen in children, uh, but adults can develop this as well. Um, and so that, that's, that's one piece. And I, I'll probably talk less about that type of diabetes uh, uh, unless questions come up. But, but the other piece is what's called type 2 diabetes. And that's what's been exploding. And that's where the tsunami is coming. And, and type 2 diabetes is essentially, in large part, caused by the increase in obesity in our society. Uh, and that's why the two are so interrelated. Obesity leading to diabetes uh, and, and the other sort of complications and, and, and diseases that go with those two are a whole set of common illnesses. And so that's why this term is starting to be used of diabetes, because they're almost inseparable. It's almost a continuum. People become obese, and, and, and as that continues over time, they become a greater, greater risk for developing type 2 diabetes, and many of them ultimately develop type 2 diabetes. Um, so, so that's the diabetes side. What, what about this idea of a tsunami? What, what am I talking about? Well, you know, a, a number of statistics here that I can just sort of share with you to, to sort of get started. Um, so uh, just in the last decade, the number of people with diabetes has doubled. Um, and if you think about diseases, there are not many diseases that have doubled in a decade uh, and that are expected to continue to increase dramatically. Um, and, and probably the, the, the scariest of the statistics, you know, to, to me is, is what's predicted for our children. So a baby born now, one third of them will develop diabetes in their lifetime, one out of three. And if it's a Hispanic girl, half of them will develop diabetes. So imagine half or one third of society having diabetes. How will we deal with that in terms of our healthcare system? We, we completely cannot uh, even fathom how we would be able to take care of that many people with diabetes. And, and why, is, why is it that diabetes is such a big issue? So, so what they all have diabetes? Well, so here are, the, here are the problems that are associated with diabetes. Uh, it's the leading cause of blindness. It's the leading cause of kidney failure, leading cause of amputation, increases the risk of heart disease and stroke two to four times. So all of these together, you now imagine 
one third of the population having this and developing you know, the number of people that are going to potentially go blind, need dialysis, have amputations, is just going to be astronomical. We, we can't afford that kind of uh, consequences, not only for the health of our society, but uh, in this increasing time of uh, economic concerns, think of what the costs of this will be. How will you care for all these people? We just simply can't do it. Uh, so that, that's where this tsunami is coming, that, that so many uh, people are going to have diabetes. And already, uh, the majority of Americans, two-thirds of Americans, are overweight. Um, and, and that's fueling this epidemic. Um, and this isn't just in the US. This is worldwide. So the statistics I described are, are happening everywhere, uh, and particularly in the developing world, where the numbers are, are really shooting up. So if you look at China and India, they have the most cases of diabetes now, and they're going to they're going to completely explode in the in the next uh, uh, generation. They won't even you know I, it will completely threaten any economic uh, plans that those countries have if they don't get a handle on this. So what the, the conversation that I'd like to have today is really what's at the root of some of these problems. What can we do? Uh, I'll highlight a little bit of what, what's happening here at Penn State because we're very interested in this problem. Uh, we've uh, created the Penn State Institute for Diabetes and Obesity that brings together researchers, clinicians, students, uh, 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 scientists from all across Penn State University to harness our energy to attack these problems that are going to affect every one of us uh, one way or the other in the future. And so we have research that, that uh, uh, just to highlight a few areas, and I'll, I'll bring more in as we sort of talk, uh, we've, we've got world-class research on, on nutrition and what are the nutritional factors, what are the right foods to eat, how can foods be uh, more effective in even using as, as uh, treatments for the disease. Uh, uh, and for prevention, uh, and in fact, there's a, a study going on looking at pistachios and eating pistachios and how that may have lower risk for people with uh, diabetes in terms of cardiovascular health. And I think there's actually somebody here recruiting that you can run into later after the program. <laughs> That's my little advertisement I was asked to give. Uh, but, but we have a, a host of studies uh, uh, looking and, and research uh, looking at the nutritional aspects. Um, uh, 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 a lot of basic science work, understanding the molecular mechanisms. What is the connection between obesity and diabetes? Why does excess fat cause diabetes? What leads to excess fat? How, is, how, are, how are there changes in people's taste as, as they gain weight that fuels uh, uh, obesity further? What are the mechanisms there? Um, we're also uh, taking this to, to sort of the public health sort of side of things. Um, and how do we rearrange our healthcare system to be able to be more preventative, to really look at the whole person? And that, that's an area of research for, that, that I'm primarily interested in, is how do we retool our, our healthcare system? Because essentially our healthcare system is really designed in the last century when most people died of acute causes. It was basically infectious diseases. Uh, and so the system was set up for you're sick, you go to the doctor, you get medicine, you go home, you're better, and you show up next time you're sick. And that worked really well when most people had died of infectious diseases. Now most people die of chronic illnesses, diabetes and obesity being amongst the most uh, uh, common causes of death. Um, and for that kind of uh, chronic illness, you really need a system that can track people, that helps them 
that, for example, finds out when, uh, here's, a, here's a simple example, uh, most uh, uh, practitioners, uh, most, uh, most uh, healthcare providers uh, could not tell you um, uh, what percent of their patients are in good blood pressure control, for example, or good cholesterol control, or which are the patients that are not without having to just use their memory. Or um, who are the patients that have not been here in the last six months or a year that I need to proactively go out and bring them back in, remind them that they need health care and that they have a chronic illness to make sure that they're getting the right treatments. Uh, right now, providers and the way the healthcare system is set up is uh, uh, from the healthcare provider's point of view, which is sort of my, my day job, uh, patients come in, I see them, and uh, I tell them to come back at some point, and if they come back at that point, great. If they didn't, eh, you know, whatever. I, I got more people to see, and I just keep seeing people. I don't really track that, and I don't reach out. Uh, I mean, now I do because of uh, uh, the work that we are involved in, but most providers don't do that. So there's a whole research in terms of healthcare delivery and how to do that more effectively. There are engineering approaches. As you know, Penn State is one of the top engineering schools in the country. And, and a lot of the manufacturing uh, uh, ideas that have worked to make things more efficient in the manufacturing world really have never been incorporated into healthcare. And so that's starting to happen now as well. And there's research as to how to best do that. So a whole host of different areas that I could highlight at Penn State. I mean, we really have uh, just an amazing wealth of uh, activity in, in obesity and diabetes. And, and, and so uh, I'll, I'll highlight some more of that as we go along, but maybe this might be a good time to stop and uh, get some questions and... Well, Bob, Bob is um, open to questions right away, so let's dive in. And what we're gonna do is, um, with your hands raised, I'll take this side of the room, Matt's on that side, and we'll just go back and forth. So um, let me know, uh, Matt, I think you're, you're gonna be up first there. Is it no, other than overeating, is it known what the causes of obesity are? Yeah, that's a good question. So what really causes obesity? So, so you're right that it is, it is sort of this equation of uh, uh, how much energy you take in or how much food you take in and how much you burn off. And, and fundamentally, it comes down to those two pieces. Um, but it, and, and, and if you look at what's happened over the last you know, generation, both of those have changed dramatically, as you as you can imagine. So you look at the portion size of, of uh, buying a bottle of Coke in the 50s, you know, and, and what that looked like now, and what a super size, you know, uh, Coke looks like now, or or an order of fries, or you know, cookie uh, 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 recipes, or any of that. So so portion sizes have increased dramatically, and physical activity is has declined dramatically, particularly if you look at children. Uh, you know, when when I was uh, younger, and, and probably same uh, for you as a child, you know, we ran out, we went to play, and we'd be physically active, you know, from the time we got home from school till dinner time. Now most kids uh, really don't do that. Many of them are, are uh, couch or mouse potatoes uh, sitting there in front of their computers. Uh, uh, and, and, and they don't have the physical activity they, they used to. But you know, the, the other thing I'll say is not only is it sort of the portion size of what we eat, uh, but it's also the foods that we eat. Um, and and uh, uh, we've, uh, Barbara Rolls has done a lot of really interesting research here at Penn State looking at energy density. So the, it, it, as you can imagine, the, sort of the calories per, per uh, you know, uh, 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 space. 
uh, uh, can make a big difference in terms of how, how satisfied you are from a meal. And, and certain foods that are really calorie dense, um, you can eat a bunch before you realize you're really full. Um, and it's very easy to overeat. You know, a few extra uh, 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 forkfuls of something really energy dense can add a lot more calories. Take the other side of that and something that's really not very calorie dense. So soup, soup can fill you up if it's not full of a lot of fat and other kinds of stuff. It's, it's actually fairly filling, it takes up space, and in a sense your stomach reacts somewhat to the space that's taken up. Uh, so there are a number of, a number of sort of, uh, uh, although it, it comes down to excess food and, and not enough burning calories, there's a lot of factors that play in there um, uh, as far as what, how that's changed societally. Question on this side. I think it's obvious to most of us that the government has a tremendous interest in, in uh, this topic and in, in trying to get the population to eat more healthily. But every time the government tries to do that, there's going to be somebody that, that jumps on that for their own political interest. For instance, just I think last week, there, some legislator wanted to propose um, taxes on soft drinks. And immediately, in the television and in the paper, what nerve of the government to try to manipulate what I'm going to eat? So what do you do? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a tricky one. And, uh, you know, and, and as you can imagine, uh, politics play into this when you're talking about the government and what the government's role should be in, in a lot of these things. Um, you know, there, there are those that believe, you know, we need smaller government or not so small government. And I, I won't even begin to get into that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there certainly are policies that can have an effect. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, anywhere from public service announcements to things like what you're describing of, of making some economic disincentives to eat unhealthily. Um, and, and, you know, one of that is to uh, uh, sort of, in a sense, tax the uh, sort of bad foods or things that have empty calories and really don't have much nutritional value. Uh, the other side of that, you know, and I think this is a, a real problem, is to have uh, healthy foods be cheaper uh, and more available. So, you know, here at State College, uh, uh, it's not so hard to get access or it's less hard to get access to healthy foods. If you, if you make a little effort, you could do that. But in many inner cities, there really are no options to healthy food. Uh, and you can imagine having an amazing impact if you could provide healthier foods. And, and this gets, you know, like, like many things, very involved because there's, you know, food subsidies and how does that sort of uh, 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 change the dynamic of what the costs are of different foods. Um, that, that certainly is another place where uh, the, the government can have a role and has had a role. But, but as an example of where, um, the, in a sense, the government has been very successful in a public health perspective uh, is smoking. So look at, look at how many fewer people smoke now than they did a generation ago. I mean, a dramatic change. You know, it used to be the majority of people smoke. Now it's uh, about 20%. And that was really a public health campaign in large part that helped to drive that. And yes, there were more taxes on cigarettes that 
that were part of that. There were a lot of facets of, of what, what was successful there, and I think a lot of people are looking at that success story and saying, what can we <coughs> learn from that in terms of how you can affect the behavior of a society through uh, a variety of interventions? We had mentioned that China and India are developing diabetes at a great rate. What is their rate compared to America's tendencies? Yeah, so, so their, their rate currently as a percentage of the population is, is still not as high as we are here. Uh, I think the scary part is that their numbers are climbing uh, very rapidly. And then, of course, as you know, they're really large countries with a large population. So the absolute number of people with diabetes, you know, when you have a billion people and you got 5% of them, that's a ton of people. Um, interesting for those two countries in particular in that area of the world, uh, for reasons that we don't fully understand, their degree of obesity doesn't have to be at the same level for them to have a higher risk of diabetes. So many of these individuals who uh, develop diabetes are less obese pound for pound, so to speak, than their American counterparts, uh, but they're at much higher risk for diabetes. And we, we don't fully understand why that is, but one of the things we know is that uh, so, so fat can be distributed in various areas of the body. The worst place to have fat is around your organs in the, in the middle area. Um, and, and sort of the, the apple shape is worse than the pear shape, so to speak. Uh, uh, and, and, and what seems to happen for uh, uh, people in the Asian subcontinent uh, uh, is that they seem to store more of their fat in the belly and, and around the organs uh, so that they outwardly don't look particularly overweight to us. Uh, but their risk of diabetes is way higher. And I think understanding that will be really important to helping that society. We have a question. <coughs> we have a question in the back here. Do you have a question? Oh, you don't. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll go over here. Okay. I'm curious about Hashimoto's disease and if you could say something about the inc incidence of that in um, the U.S. and how this, that interplays as a factor in the development of diabetes? Hashimoto's thyroid uh, disease? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, um, so, uh, you know, uh, I guess the connection would be uh, that uh, people that have low thyroid uh, levels, and Hashimoto's is the leading cause of, of low thyroid uh, activity, can certainly gain weight, and by gaining weight, become at higher risk for developing diabetes. So that, that's probably the, the connection. And, and hypothyroidism is a relatively uh, low thyroid, is a relatively common condition now. The good news is that it's, it's quite treatable with replacement therapy of a tablet of thyroid hormone. Um, in, a, in a sense, if, if you, you think of that disease and you think of diabetes, what the big difference is, both of them are not having enough of a hormone, in essence. Uh, for thyroid disease, one tablet a day, pretty much all it takes. You get a blood test every couple of months and you know, seems to work for the vast majority of people very well. Someone with diabetes, particularly those people that get to the point where they require insulin, need to measure their blood sugar several times a day, figure out the amount of grams of carbohydrate they're about to eat, and then decide on the appropriate amount of insulin that they need to deliver for that and do that several times a day. Uh, which, you know, as you can imagine from a uh, a five-year-old doing that and an 85-year-old doing that, how different those two scenarios are. Do you have a question right here? Yeah. 
Are there any uh, subpopulations or groups in the United States that have not um, suffered this increase in diabetes? I'm thinking of like Seventh-day Adventists or vegetarian groups of population. Yeah, it, that's a really interesting question. Well, you know, the, the, the one thing that comes to mind off, off the top of my head, because uh, it's sort of close to home, is, is the Amish. So, um, you know, you, you'll look in, uh, you know, the uh, central Pennsylvania area, um, and, 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 and you look at the diet that many people in uh, this area eat, uh, with you know shoe fly pie and chicken and waffles and you know so so many of these things are the same foods that the Amish are eating, but the incidence of diabetes and obesity in that population is way different. It's way lower because they're much more physically active. They've forsaken a lot of the creature comforts and electronic things that we're that have presumably made our lives easier. They're out in the fields. They're working. Um, and and in a sense, you look at you know the the food content. And I don't know if anyone's really sort of precisely measured this, but, but food intake, their diet is probably not terribly different than the typical central Pennsylvanians, but their activity <laughs> level is way different, and you don't see the obesity, you don't see the diabetes. Just a little question here. I didn't see in anything you have on, on today's talk how you spell your name, Dr. Today. Oh, I'm sorry, it's G-A-B-B-A-Y. <laughs> Any other question on this slide before we throw it back over? <laughs> okay. Uh, about the types of diabetes, what about the inherited types and then also the older age population? Sure. Uh, so, so first, to, you know, talk about hereditary, uh, you know, both types of main types of diabetes are hereditary. Uh, and there's a strong genetic component for people with type 1 diabetes, which is that autoimmune thing that, that children tend to get. Uh, it's less inherited, but for type 2, there's really a very strong genetic component. So uh, having a family history of someone in your family with type 2 diabetes puts you at much greater risk. Uh, and, and, and we don't know what genes are involved. Uh, they're probably not a single gene. It's a series of different genes, and that's why it's often harder to tease out those diseases that are caused by many different genes, because any one gene may add 5% risk. And so people are working on that, but, but, but they've not been able to figure no, that I out. I know like a family of five generations that have all had diabetes, yeah, so so really strong crazy. genetic link, absolutely. And and then there are a number of other sort of more unusual causes of diabetes where they've identified specific genes for them. Uh, and and then the, the the other part I, I wanted to add was you know in terms of aging. So what turns out is that as we all live longer, uh, the chance of diabetes increases almost independent of being obese. And, 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 that's, and, that, and what seems to happen is, so, so the, the problem in diabetes is, is basically not having enough <coughs> insulin or not enough insulin effect. Uh, insulin helps to sort of control your blood sugar, lower it, keep it in a normal range. Um, and what happens is, as we age, is the part of the body that makes insulin, the beta cell of the pancreas, just seems to tire out. Okay. Um, and, and it makes less insulin. And so as you get older, your risk gets higher. 
And if you're, a, if you're a person that already has other risk factors, like a family history or being overweight, uh, now your chances go up even higher. So if you look at the number of people with diabetes by age group, it really shoots up as people get older. Um, obviously, that's not a reason not to get older. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but it, it does make us mindful of uh, 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 you know, the risk. Um, and, and also, the other piece of that is that you know, there's a large number of people that have diabetes that are not diagnosed, that don't realize they have it. And that's where, particularly as you can imagine in the, in the elderly, it'd be really important to screen those people because many of them wouldn't necessarily know they have diabetes. And most people with type 2 don't have any symptoms when they first have it, so they wouldn't know they have it unless someone checks for it. Uh, how about gene therapy? Are people working on gene therapy to try to keep those pancreatic cells healthy and working and so on? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, there, there are two types of approaches in terms of helping the, the pancreatic beta cells be able to make more insulin. Um, uh, or actually, there are a number of different approaches, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some of them. So, um, you know, one is sort of the stem cell idea where you could grow beta cells or grow these cells, you know, from, from stem cells. And there's, you know, there's been a bunch of work on that. As you know, it's sort of on again and off again based on sort of political, judicial, you know, sort of input. Uh, the, there, there have been folks that have been looking at uh, uh, inserting specific genes into the beta cell to then have it make more insulin or, or, or turning other cells into the ability to make more insulin. And I think that's another area of research. Um, the, the other area I'll mention, so, so that's sort of the biological solution in a sense, and there have been a number of people working on this for actually a number of years, and although there's been some progress, it's been a little slow. Um, the other area that is probably more promising, there's some folks here at Penn State that are, that are involved in this, is to try to create a biomechanical uh, pancreas that basically, because we have all the components already, so what does the pancreas do? It, it senses glucose, um, and we have now uh, uh, devices that people can wear that have a continuous readout of what their blood glucose is. It senses their glucose on a continuous basis. Uh, it then figures out what the right amount of insulin is, and then releases insulin. Well, we have insulin pumps that can be used by people commonly that deliver insulin. So all you have to do is couple these two together, and you can actually presumably controlled blood glucose in a near normal range. And there's a lot of research going on there. That probably is going to be the first solution, I, I believe, that's going to be available you know, for, for people with diabetes before some of these others. But those certainly are promising and probably will take longer to have happen. How about in general, just speeding up metabolism? Like, you know, if you give prednisone, people get much more, you know, higher levels, they get much more active and, and uh, can lose a lot of weight under those conditions and so on. Anybody looking at any sort of weight loss therapies uh, that where you can pop a pill or whatever? We'd all love to pop that pill, wouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of research to try to come up with uh, uh, anti-obesity drugs, and they they work from uh, sort of the appetite side. Uh, that's primarily where they've sort of gone. Uh, there has been some work that is. Uh, looked at uh, uh, sort of simulating exercise, so they know sort of when you exercise, what are the sort of molecular changes that occur, and if you could 
stimulate something downstream there to make the body feel like it exercised. Boy, wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't have to go exercise. You just take your pill and sit back and watch TV. And, you know. uh, so people have tried this. You know, I, I think one of the challenges with coming up with drug therapy for obesity, because it's such a common uh, disease, uh, so many people will be exposed to it. And so the safety margin needs to be just at an unbelievable level. Uh, because you know once it's out there uh, and something is really effective at losing weight, not only will obese people take it, uh, but everyone in Hollywood will probably be on it. And, you know, I mean, everyone, you know, it, it'll just permeate society. You'll buy it on the Internet. And, you know, and there already are all sorts of quack things on TV that you see advertised that, you know, promise to have you lose weight and, you know, this and that. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be tricky, I think. So we'll take the question from you first, and then we have a gentleman on this side. Well, I've seen a number of articles linking uh, the substitution of high fructose corn syrup for regular sugars to the increase in obesity in America. Uh, I don't know, is that proven or, you know, I don't know how that is. But I would imagine if the Amish are eating their shoe pie, they're probably having it with sugar and not high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, you know, there, there certainly has been, a, as you say, a lot of uh, literature developing on that connection between high fructose corn syrup and, and obesity. And if you look at the introduction of high fructose corn syrup just on a time basis, and you look at obesity, they seem to parallel each other. Doesn't mean cause and effect, but, but it certainly makes you suspicious. And it's obviously, uh, uh, a cheap and easy way to get, you know, sort of things sweetened uh, to get calories in. Uh, and, and there is some molecular uh, 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 sort of explanations as to how fructose bypasses some of the normal metabolic regulation. Uh, the body's really set up more to handle uh, glucose or sucrose and not so much for fructose. Fructose enters pathways in a different step that may bypass some of the regulation. So there's a sort of molecular explanation why Fructose might be a bad thing. Uh, uh, is it proven? Uh, you know, it depends probably who you ask, but certainly there's a there's a concern. And uh, um, and you know, uh, is is there? Do we need to sort of put this in our foods? Uh, probably not. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not ser certainly serving any great nutritional value uh, for people. And you know, so yeah. I think we have a question. Did you have a question? an observation actually uh, paralleling the uh, aging definition or, uh, description you use that would cause uh, more diabetes to occur in the future aging being one we live longer yeah. uh, that's there's a parallel in that with the Alzheimer's Association dementia people and so you're going to have patients who are going to be obese with diabetes with dementia at the same time in the nursing homes yeah that's yeah absolutely right I mean, you can imagine how tricky that's going to be uh, uh, you know, in part because uh, for the uh, for many people with diabetes, uh, so so part of this diabetes thing is that they don't only have diabetes, but they typically also have high blood pressure and have high cholesterol levels, and so they typically need to be on medicines for each one of these things, and and so the average person, uh, you know, with diabetes is on multiple different medicines. And as cognitive abilities start getting affected, to be able to take all those medicines appropriately, not to make mistakes, and the risks really, really, you know, get get way more complicated. And and there is a there are links now between 
uh, uh, people with diabetes be more likely to develop Alzheimer's and some molecular mechanisms that are starting to look at what that connection might be. So, age. Yeah, yeah age, age certainly, you know, right. The, the older you are, both of those things become more common. But, but it seems something uh, perhaps beyond that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, honestly, you can't go, you know, more than a couple of weeks uh, looking through the scientific literature without seeing diabetes linked to some other bad thing. I mean, it, it seems to link to just so many different things. Any more questions over here? You have one over there. Can I get my next question over here lined up? Anybody want to? Yep. So Dr. Uh, tell me the magic food that I can eat three times a day. Boring, but it'll save me. Oh, wow. If I knew that, I'd, I'd be speaking to a much larger group, right, uh, on TV, hawking it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's unclear. I think there are a number of uh, foods that are healthy, but... Uh, could you repeat the question in case oh, that people didn't... Uh, I'm sorry. So, so he was asking for the magic food that you could eat three times a day, and that would solve all the problems. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so, you know, there, there isn't that obvious thing, but... Uh, you, your question brings up uh, another recent study that came out that I thought was really uh, uh, pretty important. Um, what the, there is something called the Mediterranean diet, um, uh, which you may have heard about, uh, which is uh, a little different than what we often eat here in Central Pennsylvania. Um, but it, it's uh, it's uh, whole grains, uh, uh, fish, uh, not much meat, uh, nuts, uh, a little bit of red wine, which I'm sort of fond of. Uh, and, uh, 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 and, and more vegetables and fruits. Well, they, they randomized uh, a, a large group of individuals who were at risk uh, for developing diabetes to being on a Mediterranean diet versus not. And, and the risk of developing diabetes in the people on the Mediterranean diet went down by two-thirds, which was pretty dramatic. Um, and, and that's actually as good as any treatment we have, you know, to prevent diabetes. Uh, so, you know, if there was a magic food, it would, you know, for now, it's, it's that element of the Mediterranean diet. And that diet, you know, has been called the Mediterranean diet. It's not dissimilar from many other sort of healthy eating things. And, you know, and, 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 it, you know it, it, it often sort of harkens back to, for me that, um, you know, a lot of all, a lot of these sorts of uh, nutritional sort of uh, uh, studies that go on, often helped to reaffirm to me in some small way what my mom told me, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, you know. I mean, you know, clearly that is a healthier diet, and, and we as a society has really moved away from that, you know. Uh, I think this, this uh, diagram here or this artwork here is sort of an interesting sort of juxtaposition. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we've been recommended to increase our amount of fruits and vegetables, and so far we've not really done a very good job of that. Part of that is having it available in an easy-to-consume, quick manner. Um, so, what, what's the uh, uh, what's the veg the number one uh, uh, vegetable that uh, kids eat? French fries. <laughs> French fries. Yeah, exactly. How good is that? Take <laughs> if we could do something in terms of changing. Who we subsidize? The fruits and vegetable people don't have an industry um, to be in there lobbying for that, and yet that is what we, what you're talking about right now. That we really need to have a, a national consciousness change, and as long as we keep on subsidizing corn growers, 
we're going to have that high fructose corn syrup. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there's there's certainly something to that. Uh, you know, uh, um, so so the the economic incentives are not aligned with what we want to see happen in society, and I think that that's the broader issue is that we could clearly uh, connect things much better. If if and, and and you know, cigarettes are a great example. Cigarettes became more and more expensive, and it actually led to some people, you know, smoking less. And, and ultimately not smoking. Right now, we really sort of don't align any economic incentives towards anything that is healthy eating. Uh, and, and certainly there are a number of ways that we could start doing that. And as they, as they said, the, the idea of in how in these inner cities, there are often no access to you know, uh, good fruits and vegetables, that's already a, a, a way in which we could do something to change that. Uh, so absolutely, I think I think there's a there's an opportunity to, to, to do something in terms of economic incentives, um, and you know, uh, but but as somebody else mentioned, uh, there's all this pushback uh, because you know each of these things are big industries and they, they don't want to see their you know their economic uh, sort of advantages uh, taken away. But I think ultimately it's going to come down to something like that, uh, and and that's on the food side. But there's also the physical environment side. Uh, so if you think about, you know, many of the places we all live, uh, it's not necessarily easy to have physical activity because there aren't even sidewalks. They're not parks in cities. They're they're not places for people to be physically active. Um, schools don't have that uh, environment. I think one example where you start seeing how uh, uh, um, sort of uh, governmental influences affect it, is starting to affect things is in schools. Uh, where you know the, the the sort of you know soft drink vending machines are starting to move away, and you can only imagine that's got to be a good thing. Uh, uh, and and so I, I think there are a number of places from public policy point of view where we can have an impact. And I think part of it is, as you said, people waking up and realizing, wow, th this is just not sustainable because it's going to happen at some point. You know, we can't keep going like this. They'll get to a point where it'll just break. Uh, and, and how much pain will it take for society to really jump and make some significant changes? That that that's cool. We'll have to wait and see. No questions on this side. Uh, gambling is a hunger driver. When gambling is high, you drive. I need to eat something, and when you eat, hunger that gambling chemical drops off again. Is there any way of satisfying that or uh, degrading it w without calories? Okay, interesting. I'm not I'm not familiar with with the uh, gamelin that you're uh, talking about, but there are a number of neurotransmitters that are being discovered in the brain that do control appetite, and that is one big area of research in terms of developing for drug development. So if you could have satiety sort of factors that mimic the effects of certain neurotransmitters that give you the signal that, you, that you're full and you've eaten, that would be a potential treatment. And uh, there, as you can imagine, there are a number of companies that are actively involved in this. And there, and there are drugs that are in clinical trials now. None of them have sort of gotten to the point of being available. The challenge, again, for all of these drugs is going to be the safety profile because the FDA is likely to look at these drugs a little bit differently than they do for other drugs. And they've sort of demonstrated that already in that the safety profile has to be so good because it's going to be available to so many people that 
Um, you're going to need to make sure it's really safe and it's going to be difficult to really regulate once you have something that's effective and it's out on the market. Uh, I was just wondering whether the push to decrease smoking has caused people to eat more. I mean, people used to just pick up a cigarette and smoke it rather than uh, eating more food. And uh, I wonder if there's a correlation there. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so certainly you, you often find when people quit smoking, they gain a little bit of weight. Uh, uh, and and you know, that, that's not an unusual observation. Uh, that being said, you know, the, the dramatic rise in uh, uh, weight gain that's occurred, you know, uh, that's probably only a, a tiny factor in that. Uh, uh, and, you know, clearly a, a, a healthy trade-off, so to speak, obviously, uh, 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 to, to do that. I read somewhere that diabetes is showing up in children as young as eight. And I was wondering what that's going to do. Would this really decrease their lifespan for the first time in generations? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point to bring up. So I think that the, the, the scary part of all of this is really when it comes to the kids. And, and kids are becoming more obese at a young age, and you can see that if you just sort of look around. Uh, you know, there weren't many obese children you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now this is not uncommon, and it's increasing. And morbid obesity in children is increasing dramatically. We have one of the, the, the top childhood obesity centers here, really trying to study how do kids decide what they eat, how, how do they get full, what cues do they get. I mean, it's a, it's a complex thing. And it also forms within the family. Uh, because, you know, you can teach the kid whatever you want in terms of, you know, what they should eat or not eat, but if the parents are eating, you know, this way, well, the kids are, you know, going to eat whatever the parents uh, uh, sort of eat. Um, but, but you're absolutely right, so that, you know, it used to be that we thought of children only developing type 1 diabetes, that autoimmune disease. Now, it's really type 2 more and more, and, and you know, it was only a generation ago that a, a child with type 2 diabetes would have been a case report and something really, you know, that you publish in the medical literature. Look at this, wow, this is unusual. Now it's happening at a younger, younger age, and, and absolutely right that this is, this is the first generation, and this is really sad, uh, that, you know, if, if you look at sort of humankind through history, we've generally increased life expectancy. Each generation was predicted to live longer if there wasn't a war or something that, you know, famine intervened. Uh, this is the first generation that if, you know, the predictions hold true, that the, that the next generation won't live as long because they're developing diabetes and obesity at a young age. Uh, and you can already detect changes in their arteries uh, at a young age, you know, at, at teenage years, you can already see that it's affecting their arteries in terms of atherosclerosis risk and heart disease. So you can only imagine that, you know, what used to be heart attacks in the 50s and 60s are going to be happening in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and so the lifetime burden of having diabetes starting at such a young age is going to make the, the complications that come from diabetes that much more likely. We have a question over here. I wondered if you have any opinion about what uh, growth hormones in our food, what role that might play in this? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly been one of those things that's been raised as a concern out there, and as you know, it's being used, you know, growth hormones uh, are, are being used a lot more. Um, not clear, you know, not clear. 
could could be could be a factor, could not be. Uh, it's it's yeah. I, I I don't really. I'm I'm not sure what to say on that one. Anybody have a question? Well, while we're waiting, let me let me just throw out one one thing to, to you know one of the other thing I was going to bring. So for people with diabetes, we know that that there are basically three things that if you take care of these three things, you can prevent most all the bad things that are going to happen. Um, so so it's it's controlling blood sugar, uh, it's controlling blood pressure, and blood cholesterol. Those three. Uh, and if you can get those to the goals uh, where we've already shown that if you get to those goals, your chance of developing you know, illness related to diabetes goes way, way down. So now, what, what percent of people with diabetes do you think have those three things under control? Yeah, about, about 10%. Meaning that 90% are not. And, and that, to me, you know, for people with diabetes, that's the fundamental question. So we, we're fortunate that in the, in the uh, um, science of diabetes care, we figured out what we can do to prevent these bad things from happening. That's not true for a lot of diseases. We know what you need to do, but it's not happening. And, and the, so why is that? Well, you know, it's, it's not that, that, you know, patients are bad, and it's not that doctors are bad. Uh, it's that the system of care, getting back to what I was talking about, the acute care system versus the chronic care system, the, the system of care is really not the way it should be designed. So, you know, the, the kinds of things that we know are helpful to help people get there um, is uh, a number of things. So, so one I talked about, making sure people don't fall between the cracks using computers to track individuals, to identify, to make sure that they get all the care that they need. And we've got computers that can do that. Computers are great to remember things and remind things and all that. So that, that's one piece of it. But also, how do you change behavior? And there are a number of researchers here at Penn State that are very interested in how do you, so, so just giving somebody a, a plan of here's how you should eat and here's how often you can exercise, how, how well do you think that works? Uh, you know, some people grab it right away and they go, that's it, I'm going to do it and that's it for the rest of my life. But for most people it doesn't. Um, and, and it's really how you discuss it with them and how you engage them and what support you give them along the way to continue to follow what you're suggesting that is more likely to do it. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, um, an example would be uh, um, engaging, well, you know, it's, it's this idea of uh, directing people what to do. People tend not to like directions, uh, to be told what to do. I have a 15-year-old, so I can speak from experience. Uh, uh, but if you negotiate with them and, and guide them, they're much more likely. So here are the kinds of things that would be helpful for you to do. What do you think you feel comfortable trying to work on today? What should we talk about? Let them choose the agenda. Let them choose what they're willing to do. And let them solve the problems. So what, what barriers do you think there might be if you decide to do this? Let's talk about them now. Let's try to solve those problems. That kind of approach just intuitively makes so much more sense, but is not the typical approach that most providers do. And so we're, we've been very interested in, in teaching providers how to do that. We, we teach our medical students now uh, through all four years of medical school how to counsel people in that way. And, and the idea will be not only to just have the doctors do this, but other people in the office, and really to have 
the whole healthcare team, helping people to make, to take care of themselves. Because a lot of this comes down to self-management. It's how people live their lives and take care of themselves. Uh, and, and that is the single biggest reason for people dying in the world today. It's how they take care of themselves. So if you can change that, not only are you going to help diabetes and obesity, but I mean, you, you talk about any chronic illness, and that's what most people die from are chronic illnesses now. It's, it's really getting a handle on that. We have a question in the back. I had a question about engaging people. Um, you talked about trying to change their dietary habits and um, that people seem to be more in tune with trying to take an active participation. And I'm thinking, this is my idea, so since it's my idea, maybe I'll put it into action. Is there any, any research that indicates or any um, projects that include a social aspect into making changes, lifestyle changes? Because I'm thinking that as, as we've seen the last decade, increases in diabetes going up, um, that the social aspects are also going down. I think people are spending less time on their front porch talking to neighbors. I think people are spending maybe more time um, at the computer and at, uh, watching TV. But that's also true in the children as well. I mean, they're not going outside, and, and the reason they're not going outside is one, they're, they're just engaged in a lot of classes outside of school, but mostly it's computers and TV that have taken up that extra time, and they're missing that social aspect. And I'm just wondering if there might be a possible link in there. Yeah, I think, I think that's clearly an important piece. Uh, 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 so one, we know that social support is really important. We, we actually have a, a researcher here that's interested in spousal support. So if, if one spouse has diabetes and the other doesn't, what that other one does has a big influence on this one. Uh, and you can imagine that intuitively in, in whether it's you know, shopping for food, the kinds of foods that are, that are cooked. Uh, so, so that kind of support matters, but also within a society matters. And one, one of the things that we've been very interested in doing, uh, uh, a number of us in the Institute, is how to sort of change the social environment so that doing the right thing is, is sort of the, for lack of a better term, the, the cool thing, the, the thing you want to do, the thing that everybody does. Um, if you think about cigarette smoking, that, again, a nice analogy there, it used to be very cool to smoke. Now, it's really not so much. It's sort of the, you can't do it in a lot of cases. People are sort of, you know, oh man, are you going to smoke? You know, it's a, it just has a very, you know, different flavor than back in the, you know, movies of the 30s and 40s where it was quite glamorous. Well, if you could make eating healthy and being physically active, um, you know, in that same way, you can really change the consciousness of, of, of society. And that, that, in a sense, is what has to happen. How that'll, what the steps are along the way is going to be a little bit tricky. And then the last thing I'll mention is that, uh, so, so for better or worse, computers are here to stay and people are going to continue to engage in them. And one of the projects we have going on is uh, using uh, the internet that basically teaches patients, uh, uh, people with diabetes, about their care and what they need to do through an interactive mechanism and then puts them into a social networking site similar to Facebook, uh, for those of the, you that uh, use Facebook, and it allows uh, various members to all contribute to each other and help them problem solve, give each other ideas, and support each other. And I think these online communities, particularly for younger people, are going to be more and more important because for better or worse, they're engaged in doing that. 
and, and we're not going to change that, so we might as well harness it for, uh, for help, helping them live better lives. Um, I'm confused about how, exactly what percentage of, of uh, diabetes could be prevented. Uh, obviously, from your talk, I'm learning that it's, it's a lot of it can be prevented by proper eating and uh, adequate exercise. But would you say it is categorically a preventable disease, or you know, would you say it's 50% preventable, 75%? What would you? How would that's, you? Uh, that's a tough one. That is a that. tough one. Uh, so uh, first, let me separate you know type one from type two, and so type one. Uh, which is that autoimmune disease is not preventable at this point. We, they've looked at various treatments to try to prevent it and immune modulators and those kinds of things and you know, maybe a little possibilities there, but, but that is clearly not preventable. But, but type 2 diabetes, it's, it's hard to put a number on it, uh, but you know, in, in a sense, you know, uh, I, I, would, I would think of it this way. Uh, Look at the number of people that had diabetes in 1900 and look at the number of people that have diabetes now. The genes have not changed in that time frame, uh, but certainly behavior has changed dramatically. And so that big increase is really behavioral uh, or you know, uh, uh, food and, and exercise related uh, and, and not you know, any sort of genetic component. So, um, you know, yes, there probably are people that, uh, uh, regardless of what they do, may develop diabetes. I don't know if that's true or not, and I'm not sure how you would test that. Um, the fact that we are aging, yes, that we're not going to fiddle with. We want to continue to age. Uh, uh, so, so there may be a proportion you might say, well, you know, at, at, after age X, there's going to be some percentage that are just going to develop diabetes. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's largely modifiable. Uh, whether it's completely preventable, it's hard to sort of say. Uh, but but I, I would say it's largely modifiable. And, and the other piece I would throw in is that once people develop diabetes, the, the complications, blindness, kidney failure, amputation, those are mostly preventable. Uh, and, and, and we do know how to do that, it's just implementing it into real life that, that has the challenges. So I, 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 I like to think of this as a very sort of positive message, is that there is a lot that can be done about this. Uh, we can prevent the disease from developing, and once you have the disease, it can be managed appropriately to prevent the, the, any of the long-term complications. And that is probably true for the vast majority of people. Well, is it actually reversible? Say if all of a sudden you would decide to lose 100 pounds like a few people do and start exercising, if you've had diabetes, would it actually be reversible? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, some of that comes down to semantics. Uh, so um, you can uh, normalize blood sugar and cholesterol and blood pressure through uh, lifestyle changes. Uh, and, and for all practical purposes, your, your uh, levels would be the same as someone without diabetes. Uh, have you been cured of diabetes or have you, uh, do you no longer have diabetes? We're not 100% sure of that answer, and, 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 and I'll, I'll tell you why it matters. Um, and, and it's come up really a lot in terms of bariatric surgery, gastric bypass surgery, where people have you know, lost a lot of weight. There seems to be benefits beyond just weight loss from that surgery by hormonal changes that occur, because people, their diabetes gets better before they lose much weight. 
Um, and so are these people considered cured? And, and so the way, it gets back to how do we diagnose diabetes? So the reason we decide that some people have diabetes and others have prediabetes is that once your blood sugar gets to a certain point, your risk of these complications I talked about, eye problems, kidney problems, nerve problems, goes up. Um, and so if you take those people and you now normalize their blood sugar, do they still have the risk of these complications? They may very well have some risk uh, in the sense that it's worth continuing to screen them. That's why the distinction is important. I mean, you could call someone cured and that would be fine, but the danger of that would be that they would then not have a yearly eye exam to detect early changes of, of diabetes affecting their eyes. And they might still be at risk for that and could get treatments. Once you call someone cured, you tend not to do anything for them anymore. Um, so so uh, it's unclear, you know, for practical purposes, they might be cured, but, but it's still important for them to probably continue to be screened for these complications. Because the, the other piece of treatment is, is controlling what we call the ABCs, A1C, which is a measure of blood sugar control, B for blood pressure, and C for cholesterol, the ABCs of diabetes. Uh, but it's also detecting the complications early enough that treatment can be instituted to prevent that from, from getting to be a real problem. So for example, a yearly eye exam can detect early changes in the eye that if treated will prevent blindness. But there are certain changes that somebody can have in the eye that they wouldn't notice any change in their vision, but if an ophthalmologist sees that change in their eyes, you can pretty much predict in the next five years half of those people will go blind. And there's an effective treatment to prevent blindness when, when you see that. The key is getting people in for those eye exams. And only about two-thirds of people get with diabetes get those yearly eye exams. So there's a big chunk of people that are not getting what they need. Um, I see you have the mic, so we'll, we'll let that be, your question be the last uh, quick question and answer, and then we're, we're going to have to wrap up. Is the increase in type 2 diabetes the result of a decreased amount of insulin production? or a lesser amount of absorption and rejection by the cells? Well, that's a great question. So what, interestingly, what happens is that uh, uh, if I were to sort of draw out the steps of type 2 diabetes, people become obese, and that makes the body resistant to the effects of insulin. Insulin doesn't work so well. So the body compensates by making extra insulin. Uh, uh, but after a while, and, and about, about a quarter of the US population is in that state, where they're making extra insulin, they, they, uh, uh, they're resistant to the effects of it, but they keep their blood sugar normal still, and they don't have diabetes yet. But they're at an increased risk for heart disease, stroke, and a whole bunch of other unfortunate uh, potential consequences. So they become resistant, they make enough insulin to compensate, and at some point, they can't make that extra insulin anymore. And that's when the blood sugar starts rising, that's when they have diabetes. So it's really two pieces. It's, it's, the insulin not working so well and not making enough insulin to compensate that, that leads to diabetes. And the extra weight is what causes? Cause, it, it, it interferes with both sides of that. It, it, makes the body, it, it makes the body resistant to the effects of insulin, absolutely. And it seems as if some of that fat accumulates into the cells that make insulin being toxic to them and they are unable to make the extra insulin now. So it's a double whammy. So uh, a very quick hour uh, that, that really taught us all a lot. Please join me in thanking Dr. Bob Gabay for a wonderful... Uh,